Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Nate Hockman, a senior at Colorado College and a member of the AEI Executive Council Program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation I moderated with AEI's Tim Carney and the dispatch's Steve Hayes on the 2020 presidential election. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AEI Executive Council Program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI's scholars through conversations like these and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on their campuses. If you want to get involved or learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link on the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here are Tim Carney and Steve Hayes. Tim Carney is the senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of, of numerous books, including most recently 2019's Alienated America, which I really recommend to anyone who's trying to understand the Trump phenomenon and our politics in the last four years, especially. Steve Hayes is an author of two New York Times bestselling books and the former editor-in-chief of The Weekly Standard. And more recently, he's the co-founder of The Dispatch, which I mentioned I, I interned for this summer. So thanks to both of you guys so much for being here. I wanted to start out just with a question I'll, I'll direct it to Steve first, then I'd, I'd like to hear Tim's thoughts on it as well. Just broadly, as it stands today, how should conservatives be thinking about the results of last week's election? Well, thanks, Nate. Thanks for the question. Thanks to AI for having me. Thanks, Luis. And it's great to be with, here with Tim. I've admired Tim's reporting for a long, long time. We're both pretty old now, so I can say a long, long time. <laughs> no, Tim, Tim is somebody you have to read because he goes out and talks to people and actually does the reporting. And it's a lot more than just hot takery. So I second what Nate said about Alienated America and also Tim's stuff for the Washington Examiner. I think in general, conservatives should feel pretty good about the way that this election turned out for a variety of reasons. I think part of what we have seen, and look, let me caveat this by saying some of the data that I'm using or basing my assumptions on is based on exit polls. We saw that the regular polling was problematic, to say the least. I think the exit polls, we're waiting to see them reweighted and we'll know more down the road. But look, I think early indications are that, you know, while there wasn't the sort of wholesale rejection of Trumpism or Donald Trump, the way that I think most people in the mainstream media thought some of the sort of hardcore Trump resistance anticipated and the polling suggested, it was sort of a, a mixed bag. I think Republicans certainly didn't get shoved out of office. Republicans were thought to be at a significant disadvantage in both the House and the Senate, likely to lose seats, likely, I think, 538's last projection or one of the last projections had Republicans at like a 70% chance of losing the, the Senate if memory serves. And, and that didn't happen. Republicans flipped a number of seats, potentially double-digit seats in the House of Representatives, retained a number of hard-fought seats in the Senate. And the presidential contest, which I don't think is necessarily a referendum on conservatism so much as it was a referendum on Donald Trump, was much more closely fought than most people anticipated. So coming out of this, there's this big source, there's this big sort, there's this big discussion now about what's next for the conservative movement. And I think it's a good conversation to have. It will, I think, finally be 
a policy-focused conversation, an issue-focused conversation. Tim and I don't agree on much on national security. I'd love to have that discussion and debate on national security with Tim and with everybody else. We haven't had a lot of those kinds of discussions over the past mm-hmm. four or five years because it's mostly been a power grab and argument by assertion rather than argument by argumentation. I agree with Steve. Thank you. It is, it is funny, the, the getting old thing. There was a time when I was a young journalist and Steve was established journalist. And now that <laughs> distinction has faded away. I'm just as old as he is. It's funny how, how you catch up to people in age. But the, now you're just distinguished. I think that's <laughs> there you go. what the election showed us. Well, a lot of it was it showed us what the last election four years ago showed us and that that wasn't too much of a fluke was that if you piece together kind of a conservative base and this Trump electorate, which Sean Trendy called the missing white voter back in 2012, you get to about half of the country. And if the races are in the right place, you get to close to an electoral college win. If you're running against Hillary, it's a win. If you're running against Biden, it's a loss. You get to about half the House. You get to about half the Senate. Now, is that good news for conservatives or bad? The reason it's, it's bad news is that it's really hard to permanently staple these two things together in some ways. Or at least it's not easy. That, that kind of what a lot of us did and thought, again, Steve and I kind of labored in a next to alongside a conservative movement that had certain assumptions. And then in 2016, they got blown up. And the funny thing is, I, I was the guy who was calling for a populism. And then it came down the road. I said, no, no, not that. But it got, <laughs> it got blown up. And when we see people like Lindsey Graham totally change what they believe in, when we see Republican voters or Republican leaders totally change what they believe in, for a conservative, it can be really dispiriting. But I think what a lot of us tried to do, certainly I think what we at the, at the Examiner tried to do is learn something about our country. We said, we used to think that the, the sort of the base out there that was neglected was all a bunch of the religious right. That's what we would call. It. Oh, they voted for Huckabee. They voted for Santorum. These are all people who are going to church every Sunday with their Bibles, reading it over dinner with their kids. No, <laughs> they're people who were watching Duck Dynasty, tired of getting crapped on by the mainstream media, and were working class, not really attached to much at all, especially not to a church. And that those people were kind of on our side, maybe. So, is it good news or bad news? I think it's good news that. If there's some way to balance these different things out, you can have a kind of conservative-ish majority. The bad news is it's going to be a lot harder work than we thought it was 10 years ago. I want to stick on the discussion of that demographic for a second, Tim, because you wrote a lot about them in Alienated America. For people who don't know, Alienated America was Tim going around to the places that went for Trump in the 2016 GOP primaries and trying to figure out essentially why he was so electric in these areas. And you talked about the missing white vote. And one of the really interesting things about Trump is he has a, it seems like a unique ability to turn these people out Mm -hmm. in a way that no other Republican politician or politician at all has been able to. One of the interesting things about this election is that it's been a sort of conventional wisdom for a while that, you know, high turnout rates help Democrats, low turnout rates help Republicans. But this was a historically high turnout rate election. And it, in many ways, redounded to the benefit of Republicans because you had super high turnout rates in these white working class, often rural communities that didn't usually show up to vote. One of the most staggering examples, I think, is in Wisconsin, where in Milwaukee, you had an increase of about 3%. 
from 2016. But in these rural Republican areas, you had an increase from 2016 that was as high as a plus 20%. So, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, Tim, as someone who's, who's spoken to these people a lot, what do you think of, of the fact that there is this really, this latent majority, perhaps, that Trump has been able to tap into? Is that something that other Republicans can tap into? Or is it really something that is specific and unique to Donald Trump? I mean, Ross Perot was the last general election candidate to tap into it. Pat Buchanan, to some extent, tapped into it. You could say that trade protectionism is the, if you were trying to say, how do we get them to come out? It's not going to be the tax reform that I and my AI colleagues call for. It's not going to just be, it's not going to be pro-life issues mostly. I mean, I think there's a conservatism and a leave me aloneism that we're both, neither of those things are offensive. You could say trade is the common line between Perot and Pat and Trump, but that's too policy minded. I mean, the thing that I learned that every political reporter learns is that the conversations we have here that matter a ton about policy are not the conversations they have at Smitty's in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And so a lot of it is the way he comes across. The, what they said to me this, in this last trip at Smitty's, a bar I keep going back to, is he talks like us. And I was just thinking, I like you guys. There's a reason I keep coming back to Smitty's. I would not hang out at this bar if Donald Trump were here. What does he talks like us mean? And so we could speculate this has to do with sort of an elite culture or a cancel culture or something where people who don't know all the insider lingo are happy that there's a guy like that. He tells it like it is never meant he speaks things that are strictly true. But all that is to say, it's a tone, a cultural thing. It's very hard to bottle. When I look at it, I say, is it correlated with his vices? Are the things that make suburban bourgeois people like me blush and embarrassed when Trump talks, are those very things, things that appeal to this big swath of the electorate that I'm explaining and trying to understand? That's me stating my worry. I'm worried that Trump's vices are what appeals to so many of these people because they're so put off by elite society that leaves them behind and tells them that their work is, has no value that they just want the guy who's going to proverbially punch Jim Acosta in the face. Right. I think Tim is exactly right. I mean, to me, this is a lot more attitudinal than it is policy driven. And this is one of the areas that I got wrong going back. I mean, I was, when I was reporting on, on these things at the Weekly Standard, I was pretty sympathetic to the Tea Party movement. I thought it was time for a disruption of the old Republican establishment, the K Street crowd, the kind of crony capitalists that Tim's done so much reporting on. And I liked the idea that the Tea Party was going to bring this ideological disruption. And what I think happened as the Tea Party in some ways became part of the Trump movement, I mean, it's not a one for one to be sure, but I think there's a lot of overlap. They're literally in a lot of the, the people who were running the Tea Parties became some of the, the leaders of the Trump movement is that I thought this was primarily about ideology and about disruption. I would see those Gallup surveys about how people self-identify and take heart in the fact that 38% of Americans identified themselves as conservatives and only 27% said they were liberals. And it turns out that they were not at all conservatives like I'm a conservative. They don't care about the tax reform stuff that I care about. They're, they're not as obsessed with the levers of policy that we spend so much time thinking and talking about. It was much more of a, an attitudinal disruption. And you know, we saw hints of this, I think, in retrospect. You go back there was a moment, Tim, I don't know if you remember it, when Rand Paul 
went to the floor of the Senate and gave a speech about drones and national security. Oh, yeah, I was there. It was a great moment. You, you were yeah. there. So I don't think that the speech that Rand Paul gave, I mean, it was it was a moment. I mean, he, he went and he took on the Obama administration. He got in their face. He challenged the president. And he gave a big speech. I don't think that he drew the support that he did. And he drew wide support from non-interventionists to hawks to you name it. Everybody was standing with Rand was the hitter, the Twitter hashtag. I don't think it was a policy-driven thing. I don't think everybody ran to him because they were really afraid of being drawn in a Starbucks. I think it was much more that he was finally taking on President Obama. He was fighting in a way that Republicans yep. had not been fighting. And that's what people wanted as much as anything. They were looking for sort of a pugilistic conservative as much as anything else. And you know, Donald Trump, I would argue, was much more of a pugilist than a conservative. Although he, you know, he certainly over his four years as president, he's done some conservative things. He's implemented some conservative policies, but that's what I think they wanted. And that's where that overlap, as Tim says, stapling the people who wanted that pugilism with the ideological conservatives, that is in some ways the project now. Yeah. Pat Buchanan called these people conservatives of the heart, which I always thought was an interesting articulation. His famous culture war speech, he said, you know, these are not people who read Adam Smith or Edmund Burke, but there are people. But one of the interesting other parts of this election is the fact that the people that Pat Buchanan was talking about in the 90s, who are primarily the white working class, are not the only part of the Republican coalition anymore, right? I mean, what everyone is talking about is the fact that the GOP has the most non-white coalition that they've had since at least 1960. And, you know, you're seeing serious Hispanic movement into the Republican Party. You're seeing, although it's still marginal, you did see Trump significantly improve his standing with, with Black voters. And I'm curious, a lot of my more populist friends are sort of heralding the sign of the realignment, right? Where the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the college-educated people and the yep. Republican Party is becoming the party of the multiracial working class. And you know, as a conservative and a Republican, I really like that idea, even if I don't agree with all the populist realignment policy stuff. Is that naively optimistic? You know, is this really just something that's like a flash in the pan that just happened this time and it's not actually indicative of a larger demographic shift? Or is it something that is that Republicans are going to continue to see as a trend in the future? I think it's down the middle. It's not the case that what I would like to hear is Hispanic and black voters who are more attached to church than the average upper middle class white voter are the religious right, conservative of the heart, pro-lifers who are rebelling against our, our culture wars. I think that's only a tiny bit true. The farthest extreme of the sort of pessimistic story I've heard, that's also only a tiny bit true, is Trump's style of wanting to piss everybody off appeals to working class men of all races, that the Duck Dynasty to the Hispanic or black neighborhood, that these guys who kind of don't want anybody telling them what to do, no matter black, white, Hispanic, that they're doing. I think it is somewhere in the middle. And the Democratic Party really is becoming the party of what my Brookings colleague, Richard Reeves, talks about dream hoarders. I mean, the upper middle class that's building a wall around them, Charles Murray's Belmont, that the two priorities seem to be of the Democratic Party, college debt forgiveness up to $50,000. And Chuck Schumer said the first action, if they win both of these races and take back the Senate, is 
removing the cap on the $10,000 tax deduction for state and local taxes. Only 14% of the country even itemizes their taxes anymore. Okay. When he gave a speech about that, he went to a place in Long Island, a town literally called Lake Success. Okay. Chuck (laughs) Schumer is trying to make his party into the party of those who are bathing in the lake of success. And I think that is the reason, not so much what Republicans have done, but what the Democrats are consciously doing that can make the working class non-white be brought into the Republican Party with the right course of action. And notably, notably, it does not take what the establishment has been telling us for 20 years. It does not take a Republican Party saying, open the borders, mass immigration. That's how we win the Hispanic vote. That's obviously not who Trump was. So that story was proven false. And some sort of populism can be the way to bring them in. Again, I don't know exactly I think, how to do it. I think, that's, I, think there's, I think there's a lot there. I would only add, there seems to be also a flip side. I mean, this is where, and we're seeing this to some extent in, in the schism of the Democratic Party that's finally starting to be covered the way that the schisms in the Republican Party have been covered for so many years. I would say the, the other part of the argument, I think, and this is particularly true in Southeast Florida, is the Republican arguments about socialism finally kind of hit home for people. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I think as one of my friends, a guy named Alberto Martinez, who's a longtime political strategist in Florida, said, he said, when Hispanics in Florida hear that, many of them coming from Central and South America hear Democrats making arguments about socialism, it's not theoretical to them. This is like what they fled and they don't want to go back to it. And so, you know, socialism might sound like lattes on a college campus debating, you know, Karl Marx or debating economics. That's not what it means to a lot of Hispanic Floridians. So I think that explains part of it. But the Democrats in this case have, have nobody but themselves to blame. I mean, you know, clearly the Republicans over the course of the campaign overstated. I mean, Donald Trump in particular didn't make, I would say, terribly precise arguments about socialism and uh, <laughs> tried to label Joe Biden as a Trojan horse socialist. But Democrats made that argument pretty easy for Republicans. Because they almost, they almost nominated a socialist, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders was a South Carolina primary away from being the Democratic nominee. I remember I was, I was up in New York doing Fox News on the noon show called Outnumbered, which is four women and a, they plop a guy in the middle and you have a discussion. And I was sitting next to Marie Harf, who's a former Obama administration spokeswoman. She was a State Department spokeswoman. I think she's pretty sharp. She makes good arguments. I enjoy sort of going back and forth with her. And it was at a time when the conventional wisdom had congealed pretty quickly around this idea that Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee. Absolutely fascinating to have a discussion with her and then watch the Sunday talk shows and watch the sort of Democratic establishment very, very quickly get comfortable with Bernie Sanders. (laughs) When they thought Donald (laughs) Trump was the alternative, they started embracing Bernie Sanders. I mean, they fought this guy forever. But they got comfortable with it. And I think that's one of the reasons that those arguments resonated is because, you know, Joe Biden sat down with Bernie Sanders right after they had this committee. They worked together. He adopted some of Bernie's policy ideas, wanted him to feel included. So there, there was a there there. And do you remember there was one line that Trump would say, and it seems so clearly copied and pasted into the speech. He said, the United States will never be a socialist country. Yeah. And he would say it in the middle of like bragging about how his his ratings had been in The Apprentice and before talking about some completely different issue. 
And it was just like, somebody said, you have to say this. And there was applause in the white working class coal miner audiences I was in in Pennsylvania when they say it. But I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, that's not an argument. But then somebody said after the election, how do you think that sounded yeah. in Miami? How do you think yeah. that sounded around the Rio Grande border for people who were coming up from Central America? And again, the Democratic answer is, oh, no, no, we're not talking about that sort of Hugo Chavez socialism. We're talking about sort of Norway social, like yeah. white socialism is going to be good for you guys. The Hispanic right. socialism didn't work. Yeah. As absurd as it might have been when he sort of says it in his rallies in between three hours of talking about how great he is, I do think for me, I think one of the most powerful moments of his State of the Union address was when he said with like really good delivery, the United States will never be a socialist country and there's a standing ovation. I mean, and he had victims of socialism there. I thought that was actually a really well done aspect of, of the speech. And it's true. I mean, I've, I've heard it said before, right? When you talk to refugees from Cuba and Venezuela about socialism, they don't hear Norway and Scandinavia. They hear the dictators who killed their family members. So both of you talked about reactions from the non-white working class against the Democratic Party, right? Socialism being a major factor, sort of a increasingly sort of on its face absurd cultural liberalism that comes from sort of academic philosophy classrooms. And is, is, it speaks a language that is completely disconnected from the language that working class people of all races speak. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Steve. How much of the movement of non-white working class people into the Republican Party is really just a reaction against the Democratic Party having sort of gone insane in some important ways yeah. versus what I think some of my populist realignment friends want it to be? which is that it's because of a more populist working class message, economic populism, nationalism, whatever you want to call it. Again, I think we'll know more after we see sort of the, the full data come in. But I'd say early indications are it's much more the former than the latter. It, it's interesting to think about the ways in which I would say particularly the Democratic Party has thought about race. You know, there's this, this sort of demography is destiny assumption that underlies so much of what the Democratic Party has done. And look, as Tim noted on on the push for, I would say not open borders, but certainly less restrictive immigration, you had that push after the 2012 presidential election, the, the Republican Party conducted this autopsy and described what went wrong and wrote at great length about how they needed to basically just flip positions, right? I mean, Republicans had sort of argued in this one direction and they thought, well, Hispanic voters don't like that, so we should sort of flip positions. And I think, you know, on all sides, it turns out voters are really complicated. They don't fit into neat little categories that demographers or pollsters or pundits or whomever want to put them in. And as often as not, I mean, this is one of the reasons that why it's so fun to report about this stuff and to get out and actually talk to people. They don't tell you what you'd expect them to tell you many times. You go in and you have a conversation, you actually listen to people and pay attention to what they're saying. They surprise you all the time. So I think that's what we saw sort of at scale in this election is people don't fit in neat little categories. I think the reason that's more of a challenge for the left is to a certain extent, you've had an intellectual right that's been making that argument for years, for decades, right? No, don't group people into little categories. And you've had a, an intellectual left that has said, no, no, that's okay. They have these attributes, these physical attributes, so they must think this way. And if they don't, they're sort of a, you know, a traitor to their race or a traitor to their heritage, whatever. I hope we've seen kind of the breaking apart of those calcified assumptions in a way that might allow us 
to have a debate about, about these things on substantive issues, on policies. Really interesting results out of California. Michael Powell from the New York Times, who does some interesting writing and reporting on free speech issues broadly, did some interesting reporting about what he'd seen in heavily Hispanic counties as it relates to a ballot referendum that was on the ballot in California, November 3rd, on affirmative action, on racial preferences. And something that certainly nobody on the left would have predicted, significant numbers of voters in these heavily Hispanic counties voted against racial preferences, against affirmative action. Now, we'd seen this back in 1996. I mean, similar thing happened, some surprising results on a similar referendum back then. But people are sort of surprised to be surprised. So we, I mean, we're overdue for, for Q&A, but I had one more question that I wanted to ask specifically to Steve and then Tim can add his thoughts if, if he feels so compelled. But I'm just curious to hear, you know, Steve, as, as one of the co-founders of The Dispatch, which is known as being in the, if not never Trump, Trump skeptical space, what does the quote unquote never Trump movement look like, you know, after Trump in the environment we're in? I'm curious in general what you think, you know, this, this really loose coalition, where do they go from here? Is there a difference between where, you know, you and Jonah and David go from where Bill Crystal and Jennifer Rubin goes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, just to, just to challenge the premise a little bit, I don't think it was ever really much of a coalition. I mean, it wasn't really much of a movement. I wasn't going to vote for Donald Trump. I didn't support Donald Trump. I've been skeptical of him throughout. Jonah and Jonah Goldberg and David French certainly have been skeptical as well. We have contributors at the dispatch who have supported the president and who voted for the president. So, you know, we have a broader range of people than a sort of never Trump label would suggest. And, and we've done that on purpose. I mean, in the spring of 2019, when we went and talked about this with investors, Jonah and I would give a 20 minute presentation and never mention Trump. And then the first question we would get would be about Trump. And the way that we talked about it was, look, we're, we're starting this thing not in opposition to any particular politician. You know, we have views on Trump. I'm not going to be shy about what they are. I'll criticize him when I think he deserves criticism. I've praised him more rarely. But we said we're not certainly not pro-Trump. We're not anti-Trump. We're post-Trump. And in our ideal world, we're going to exist in 50 years and we're going to be talking about sort of limited government, the principles of the founding the kind of doing the kind of reporting and analysis that is informed by those conservative principles. So that's what we set out to do at the dispatch. In an interesting way, we think that this is what we were kind of created to do is to participate in these kinds of debates and discussions, hopefully in good faith with people on the center right, center left and center right on the policy issues on sort of where we go. And I think in, in that sense, and the big question is how long is Trump? How long is Trump a presence, right? And I've got a, a running bet with one of my colleagues at the Dispatch, Sarah Isker, who was a former spokeswoman for Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department, worked in the Trump administration. I wouldn't say she would describe herself as a Trumpist, but worked there for a couple of years. And she thinks Trump runs again in 2024 and is the prohibitive favorite to be the Republican nominee in 2024. And I think he won't have the staying power. I think he'll be a presence. There's no question about that. But I think once, once we get past inauguration, once we're talking about a Biden administration, once Trump is sort of reduced to tweeting or starting his own media company or whatever he's doing, he'll command the attention of a lot of people on the center right. Certainly the diehard Trump supporters who've been with him for the past five years are unlikely to go anywhere else. But I don't think 
elected Republicans are likely to be quite as responsive to him, certainly not as responsive to him as they as they have been. And I think he'll look sort of on a relative basis, kind of small, not being in the office, not having all the trappings of the office, not flying on Marine One. I want to just quickly pipe in about the sort of never Trump spectrum. Obviously, there, there is a spectrum. I didn't vote for the guy. Our opinion editor, Phil Klein, I don't think voted for the guy at the Examiner. Seth Mandel, our magazine editor, didn't vote for the guy, but our magazine endorsed him in the jet, et cetera. There's, and then at the other end, though, is the Lincoln Project. And there are a lot of people who just showed that they weren't conservatives. I think the Lincoln Project was Republican operatives who never believed in conservatism, who had been grifting conservatives who admitted in their books, oh, you know, nobody actually believes that there is God or Jesus. And the pro-lifeism was just a cynical ploy. And then they saw, okay, maybe there's more money to get out of these MSNBC viewers, get Rachel Maddow's viewers to donate money to us by running ads that aren't going to meet a single vote. And so, and then there were people who were so put off by Trump that they gave up their slim attachment to conservatism. And then there's a lot of people, and I think the dispatch and the examiner are two very good examples of this, who really were put off by Trump and disagreed on how much we should call balls and strikes versus how much we should just say, this guy's totally unfit for the job. And hopefully Trump walks away. And on that point of disagreement, we can move on and get back to Steve and I arguing about what a big mistake the Iraq war was. <laughs> that would be nice. We'll have to do a whole other panel about this. <laughs> so I, I want to move on to Q&A. The first one is submitted from someone who wants to listen to the audio, but, but couldn't make it. My friend Molly, she's a progressive, but she's interested in conservatism, which I appreciate. Conservative um, curious. Yeah, exactly. One day she'll be converted to the cause, I hope. But for now, she's, she's a lefty. She wants to know, can conservatism acknowledge systemic racism? And what would a more anti-racist conservatism look like? So, Tim, I want to hear from you yeah. first. So I, I've written a lot about this, both in Alienated America and since Alienated America. And the first thing is, I think the key has to be, the way I put it is, the left will always call conservatives racist. Not you, Molly, but others. The key is, we need to convince the racists that we're not racist. <laughs> and so to just reach out with rhetoric and policies to make it really clear that we want a as many Black and Hispanic and, and other minorities, et cetera, immigrants, Muslims, to be conservative, that we want them, we want them to be in positions of leadership. That'll gross out the racists, hopefully. But B, to acknowledge systemic racism, the part of the problem is that this talk always, it either sounds weird and academic -y, or it sounds like it's assigning blame. And one discussion I saw on the internet 10 years ago said, you ever play a video game where you can play it on an easy setting or a harding, harder setting? If you just said, you know what, for most of your life, being a white male is playing on an easier setting. And the black guy who's suspected, you know, because he's walking down the street is more likely to be suspected of being criminal. He's playing it on a harder setting. Now, maybe after you both are at Harvard, it might be easier for the black guy because of what you see as affirmative action or whatever. But if we just sort of acknowledge that, that that is not because you white guy are a racist, but just this is the way latent prejudices work. A way of talking about systemic racism that doesn't use either academic language or assign blame, I think can happen, or I should say maybe can happen. I like Tim's phrase, gross out the racists. I think that's a noble goal. <laughs> I would like to do the same thing. But I mean, to me, the obvious first step is to not have prominent 
people identified with the conservative movement in positions of power, making race, saying racist stuff. And we had that with President Trump repeatedly. Now, whether you want to call him a racist, I think he was a racist. Other people don't think he was racist. We can have that debate. He said racist stuff. He said it way too often. And to me, I found that repulsive. I think the, the challenge for me, I worked the affirmative action ballot measure that I, I mentioned in passing earlier in 1996. I worked, it was my only time I've ever done any kind of a campaign thing. I worked for two months on Proposition 209, which was an anti-racial preference, anti-quota ballot initiative in California. And you know, we literally borrowed language from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It was the most unobjectionable thing you could possibly use to put on the ballot. And throughout the whole campaign, the, the guy who was running it, Ward Connerly, who's a, he's a mixed race person, but was regarded as, as a black man, was called a racist, like repeatedly, and an Uncle Tom and all of the things. And I just couldn't understand why anybody would say that. And to me, you know, we were sort of on the side of the angels. We didn't want to treat people based on categories and, and ethnic qualities and skin color. And it won, I think, 54-45-ish. And I just assumed that everybody who had voted for it was, you know, had, again, the same views. It's mirror imaging. I'm projecting. I think people hold my views on this stuff. And it turns out, you know what, more people than I'm comfortable with and that I would like to admit probably voted for it for the wrong reasons. More people were into the birther conspiracy theories about President Obama because of racial issues than I understood at the time and that I would like to admit now. But that's, that's the fact. One of the things that I think bothered me throughout the five years of, of this Trump era more than anything else about some of my fellow conservatives was the inability or unwillingness to denounce obvious racism when, when we saw it. And in some cases, to accommodate people who were either using racist language or, or worse. And that was frustrating. People just felt like they didn't need to speak up. And I was in more than a few heated arguments with elected officials about that. That was frustrating. So this is a question from my friend Ella, who I met at AEI, actually. It's directed at Tim. Tim, do you think the concern directed towards right-wing populism slash Trumpers is valid? Which attitudes of theirs do you find particularly concerning? And what within their movement recognizes legitimate issues? So I think the, the racial stuff is a real interesting stuff to talk about because if somebody says, I don't like how my neighborhood has changed, the sort of liberal instinct is you don't like the fact that black and brown people live around you. And what I found, what I tried to write in Alienated America is that kind of is in there and make America great again and America used to be better. You can't remove it from the fact that either I didn't have to compete against or I didn't have to live next to black people, Hispanic people, women competing for the same job. But on the other hand, like your neighborhood does change. And if your favorite bar and grill leaves and what they sell now are pupusas and you don't like pupusas, well, is that really a horrible grievance to say the place that sold used to sell chicken tenders now sells pupusas? So understanding that. That like, yeah, racism isn't as often on black and white switch. I guess that's the wrong metaphor for it. But racism, everybody's a little bit racist, right? I think that people can be brought away from those prejudices, especially if we acknowledge that some of what they lost, and that's a huge part of what I found, people who were most motivated to come out of the woodwork, who hadn't voted since Perot and voted for Trump, were people who felt we lost something that was real. And the elites are telling us that we should be glad that it's gone. Yeah. 
is race tied up in that? Yes. But if we acknowledge that loss and don't do it in the Trump way that then exacerbates their racism, but draw them out of it and help them maybe, then we can address it. I mean, I'm not speaking very clearly. No, it's an incredibly profound point. And I think there's a ton of truth in that. I grew up outside of Milwaukee. My, my wife's family grew up outside of Toledo. You know, I know a lot of these people. You know, I grew up with a lot of these people. And you talk to them about race and they would never say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a racist. I, I harbor racist views. But there are legitimate ways in which they lament what they had. I mean, there are legitimate ways in which I lament the way that I grew up and the neighborhood that I grew up in. I think to Ella's question directly, Donald Trump didn't make those distinctions. He wasn't that subtle. He said, they're going to build housing projects in your suburb and maybe Cory Booker's coming. That's just obnoxious. It's totally ridiculous. And it's the kind of thing that I wanted more people to speak out against. And you know, it's frustrating to know. It. And look, I'm sympathetic to the arguments that I would get back from these elected officials who would say, we can't speak up every time the, the guy says something that bothers people, because then that's all we would do. And we couldn't function. I understand that. I guess on, on some of those issues, like that one, you got to speak up. You're not going to get past that as a, as a movement unless you make very clear that, that that thinking just isn't welcome. So this one, we'll start with Steve. It's from Jim Tolbert. Who do you see bringing forward an optimistic and reality-based conservative message over the next two-year election cycle that links back to personal responsibility and opportunities in America? And what can we do to support that message? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Over the next two years, I don't know. I think We've already seen, we've seen the start of the scrum for Republican positioning for the 2024 presidential election. We had Larry Hogan give a, a speech at, a, at the Reagan Institute a couple of days ago. He answered some questions at an event that, that we had at the dispatch right after the election. And I think, you know, you're likely to see a split. It's been very interesting to watch the presumed candidates maneuver both before the election and, and now after the election. There's, I think, likely to be a huge scrum. You'll forgive me, these are overly simplistic ways of talking about this stuff and there aren't actual lanes, but you know, there, there's a belief that there is a big opening for somebody who can do Trumpism without Trump. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty skeptical of, of that generally, but you're seeing people like Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, I think, probably all fit broadly in that category. And I don't know how it'll shake out. I wouldn't, you know, if you ask me off the top of my head, do I think that that's likely to be an optimistic message? I guess I would say I probably don't. I think there are others who are likely to, to sort of reach back further, potentially to a conservative movement. First of all, I think it's a straw man for people who say, yeah, there are these conservative thinkers or presidential candidates who just want to go back and run on the policy agenda of five years ago. That's what Marco Rubio has been lately saying. I don't, I literally don't know any of those people who want to run on what was the sort of Republican policy agenda five years ago. But I think, you know, you'll have people like Larry Hogan, who's, who's calling on Ronald Reagan, trying to present the best qualities of Ronald Reagan. I don't know if Ben Sass will end up running, but, he, you know, he's certainly an interesting thinker who spends a lot of time on the kinds of issues that we're talking about today but doesn't come at it from a kind of Trumpism without Trump perspective. So I think there's going to be a scrum. And then, of course, there'll be a bunch of people that we're not talking about. I would expect there's a big opening for, for governors. Doug Ducey in Arizona is, is interesting, has done some interesting policy work. So I think, you know, 
after five years where we really didn't hear many actual arguments from our political leaders on the center right in favor of limiting government, we're now about to enter a phase where we're going to have for four years a huge argument about what government should or should not do. And that I think that's great. Yeah, I think, you know, Ben Sass, I think, would have been much better positioned to run for president in like 2014 versus 2016, because I think he's unfortunately in this weird position where he's alienated really Trumpy people, but he's also alienated, you know, Trump skeptics because of a variety of different sort of failures to speak up when Trump does something objectionable, but we'll see. So the last question from, from Matt Stokes is, I think it's directed at Tim. It's Tim's analysis isn't wrong, but the voters he describes are motivated by grievances, both real and imagined. Too many GOP polls won election, politicians won election. Tommy Tuberville in my home of Alabama, such as Tommy Tuberville in my home of Alabama, on the basis of fake cultural grievances. In any case, these attitudes are not healthy. How can conservatives try to reorient these sentiments? I think that's a a great question. And I would say, let's focus on real cultural grievances. (laughs) My argument in Alienated America was that communities really are weaker than they used to be. And this is what Robert Putnam argued in Bowling Alone. It's not some conservative Trumpist idea to say that people are not as connected as they used to be. What can Congress or the president do about it? Not that much directly, but I mean, this is, I think, some of what Rubio is trying to do when he talks about a common good conservatism is to say, to the bit of the throwback language that's implied in Make America Great Again, and the conservatism that was a lot of the social conservatism of the older days, most of the time that Steve and I have been in Washington, combine them and just say, the good life has a few things. The left doesn't like it. And you know what? A lot of our modern culture has rejected and our political elites, I argue, take it for granted, community, family, that kind of thing. I sometimes wonder, what if a candidate stood up and said, Millions of women are working full-time and they want to be working part-time or staying home with their kids and that to be their full-time job. Communities are better off when we have more stay-at-home moms. I'm going to make sure that the federal government isn't an obstacle to them staying at home. Boom. New York Times blows up. You know, everybody else goes nuts. And all these voters out there are like, that person makes sense. Why are you not allowed to say that? Again, I don't want federal subsidies for stay-at-home moms, but I want the federal government to stop making it harder for people to stay at home. So that's the sort of thing. A real grievance was kind of a a tongue-in-cheek way of saying it, but people are going to be upset about things. This is a sad thing I found in talking to people, studying polling, studying focus groups. You're more likely to get somebody excited with a negative than a positive. When we worked on crony capitalism, the people at Heritage Action came up with a slogan. It was, opportunity for all, favoritism for none. And when they focus grouped it, everybody got excited about the favoritism for none. Mm. And people are like, oh yeah, opportunity for all sounds fine. So unfortunately, people are motivated by negative. So let's point to the things that really are suffering in American culture and in their life and try to remedy them or at least talk about them as being the cost that they are. Yeah, it's interesting. The the pro-family stuff, I, I'm, I'm sure the New York Times would blow up if a Republican ran on a pro-family policy. But Elizabeth Warren, for example, you know, up until pretty recently was sort of like a pro-family candidate. So it's, it's interesting to see opportunities for working together. I know Marco Rubio is working on a paid family leave bill with a Democrat right now. So that's potentially a reason for excitement. But thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat. It was really, really fun for me. I hope it was for you. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Thanks thank for having me. Enjoyed it, Tim. Thanks, awesome. Steve. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. 